Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking a trip back to the 1950s to find out how one of the world's greatest minds revealed the maths behind some of the deepest mysteries of life, from the patterning of stripes on a zebra to the spots on a leopard, and even the bones in your own body. Welcome back. I hope you had a happy and healthy festive season and are heading into the new year with hope in your heart. Apologies if I sound a little croaky. It's not COVID, but I have got a horrible chest infection that I picked up off my snotty little nephew. Before we start, I want to let you know about the Festival of Genomics and Biodata, a fascinating celebration of the world of genes and genomes brought to you by Frontline Genomics, which is running online from the 25th to the 29th of January. The festival is covering a wider range of subjects than ever before, with talks on multiomics, liquid biopsy, cancer genomics, drug discovery, precision medicine, the dark genome, single cell, polygenic risk scores, big data, AI, the microbiome, and more. So you'll definitely find something you enjoy. You can tune in live or watch on demand to hear from more than 200 expert speakers from the cutting edge of genomics and health data science, including a few we've had on the podcast before. And it's free for 95% of attendees. Find out more and register at festivalofgenomics.com. We're kicking off 2022 with a story I originally wrote a little while back for the science magazine Mosaic, which we're using here under a Creative Commons licence. So, if you're sitting comfortably, best beloved, then we'll begin. In the olden times, a man and a leopard are hunting for food up in the high veldt of Africa. Now, back then, the leopard was a greyish-yellowish colour, perfectly matching the greyish-yellowish felt, perfect for hunting his prey. But eventually, the other animals got wise to leopard's tricks. They moved into the forest, and they changed their skin. Blotchy for giraffe, stripy for zebra, blending in perfectly with the dappled shadows, while poor leopard stood out like a sore thumb. To cut a long story short... The wise baboon Barvian suggests the leopard and his friend break out the face paints. Think of giraffe, said the man. Or, if you prefer stripes, think of zebra. They find their spots and stripes give them perfect satisfaction. Mmm, says the leopard. I wouldn't look like zebra, not for ever so. Well, make up your mind, says his friend because I'd hate to go hunting without you, but I must if you insist on looking like a sunflower against a tarred fence. I'll take spots then, says the leopard, but don't make them too vulgar big. I wouldn't look like giraffe, not for ever so. If you've ever read Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories, published in 1902, then you might just recognise that tale. Kipling's explanation of how the leopard got his spots as the result of an over-enthusiastic finger-painting session, isn't exactly scientifically correct. But 50 years later, in 1952, a mathematician published a set of equations that tried to explain the patterns we see in nature. From the dappled stripes adorning the back of a zebra, to the walled leaves on a plant stem, or even the complex tucking and folding that turns a ball of cells into an organism. His name? 
was Alan Turing. More famous for cracking the wartime Enigma code and for his contributions to mathematics, computer science and artificial intelligence, it may come as a surprise that Turing harboured such an interest. In fact, it was an extension of his fascinations with the working of the mind and the underlying nature of life. The secret glory of Turing's wartime success had faded by the 1950s, and he was holed up in the grimly industrial confines of the University of Manchester. In theory, he was there to develop programmes for one of the world's first electronic computers, a motley collection of valves, wires and tubes, but he found himself increasingly sidelined by greasy-fingered engineers who were more focused on nuts and bolts than numbers. This disconnect was probably intentional on Turing's part, rather than deliberate on theirs, as his attention was drifting away from computing towards bigger questions about life. It was a good time to be excited about biology. Researchers around the world were busy getting to grips with the nature of genes, and James Watson and Francis Crick would soon reveal the structure of DNA in 1953. There was also a growing interest in cybernetics, the idea of living beings as biological computers that could be deconstructed, hacked and rebuilt. Turing was quickly adopted into a gang of pioneering scientists and mathematicians known as the Ratio Club, where his ideas about artificial intelligence and machine learning were welcomed and encouraged. Against this backdrop, Turing took up a subject that had fascinated him since before the war. Embryology, the science of building a baby from a single fertilised egg cell, had been a hot topic in the early part of the 20th century. But progress sputtered to a halt as scientists realised they lacked the technical tools and scientific framework to figure it out. Perhaps, some thinkers concluded, the inner workings of life were fundamentally unknowable. Turing viewed this as a cop-out. If a computer could be programmed to calculate, then a biological organism must also have some kind of underlying logic too. He set to work collecting flowers in the Cheshire countryside, scrutinising the patterns in nature. Then came the equations. Complex, unruly beasts that couldn't be solved by human hands and brains. Luckily, the very latest computer, a Ferranti Mark I, had just arrived in Manchester, and Turing soon put it to work crunching the numbers. Gradually, his mathematical theory of embryology, as he referred to it, began to take shape. Like all the best scientific ideas, Turing's theory was elegant and simple. Any repeating natural pattern could be created by the interaction of two things – molecules, cells, whatever – with particular characteristics. Through a mathematical principle he called reaction diffusion, these two components would spontaneously self-organise into spots, stripes, rings, swirls or dappled blobs. In particular, his attention focused on morphogens, the then unknown molecules in developing organisms that control their growing shape and structure. The identities and interactions of these chemicals were, at the time, as enigmatic as the eponymous wartime code. 
based on pioneering experiments on frog, fly and sea urchin embryos from the turn of the 20th century, involving painstakingly cutting and pasting tiny bits of tissue onto other tiny bits of tissue. Biologists knew that they had to be there, but they had no idea how these morphogens worked. Although the nature of morphogens was a mystery, Turing believed that he might have cracked their code. His paper, The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis, appeared in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society in August 1952. Sadly, Turing didn't live long enough to find out whether he was right. He took his own life in 1954, following a conviction for gross indecency and subsequent chemical castration, the penalty for being openly gay in an intolerant time. In those two short years, there was little to signpost the twists and turns that his patterns would take over the next 60 years, as biologists and mathematicians battled it out between the parallel worlds of embryology and computing. In a cramped office in London, tucked away somewhere on the 27th floor of Guy's Hospital, Professor Jeremy Green of King's College London is pointing at a screen. A programme that simulates Turing patterns is running in a small window. At the top left is a square box, filled with writhing, zebra-like monochrome stripes. Next to it is a brain-bending panel of equations. It's astonishing that Turing came up with this out of nowhere, as it's not intuitive at all, says Green, as he pokes a finger at the symbols. But the equations are much less fearsome than you think. The essence of a Turing system is that you have two components, both of which can spread through space, or at least behave as if they do. These could be anything from the ripples of sand on a dune to two chemicals moving through the sticky goop holding cells together in a developing embryo. The key thing is that whatever they are, the two things spread at different speeds, one faster than the other. One component has to be auto-activating, meaning that it can turn on the machinery that makes more of itself. But this activator also produces the second component, an inhibitor that switches off the activator. Crucially, the inhibitor has to move at a faster pace than the activator through space. The beauty of it is that Turing systems are completely self-contained, self-starting and self-organising. According to Green, all that one needs to get going is just a little bit of activator. The first thing it does is make more of itself. And what prevents it from ramping up forever? As soon as it gets to a certain level, it switches on the inhibitor, which builds up to stop it. The way to think about it is that as the activator builds up, it has a head start, says Green. So you end up with, say, a black stripe. But the inhibitor then builds up and spreads more quickly. At a certain point, it catches up with the activator in space and stops it in its tracks. And that makes one stripe. From these simple components, you can create a world of patterns. The fearsome equations are just a way of describing those two things. All you need is to adjust the conditions or parameters. Tweaking the rates of spreading and decay, or changing how good the activator is at turning itself on, and how quickly the inhibitor shuts it down, subtly alters the pattern to create spots or stripes, swirls or splodges. 
Despite its elegance and simplicity, Turing's reaction diffusion idea gained little ground with the majority of developmental biologists at the time. And without the author around to champion his ideas, they remained in the domain of a small bunch of mathematicians. In the absence of solid evidence that Turing mechanisms were playing a part in any living system, they seemed destined to be a neat but irrelevant distraction. Biologists were busy grappling with a bigger mystery, how a tiny blob of cells organises itself to create a head, tail, arms, legs and everything in between to build a new organism. In the late 1960s, a new explanation appeared, championed by the eminent and persuasive embryologist Lewis Wolpert and carried aloft by the legion of developmental biologists that followed in his footsteps. The concept of positional information suggests that cells in a developing embryo sense where they are in relation to an underlying map of molecular signals. Yep, the mysterious morphogens. By way of explanation, Wolpert waved the French flag. Imagine a rectangular block of cells in the shape of a flag. A strip of cells along the left-hand edge are pumping out a morphogen, let's call it striper, that gradually spreads out to create a smooth gradient of signal, high to low, from left to right. Sensing the levels of striper around them, the cells begin to act accordingly. Those on the left turn blue if the level of striper is above a certain specific threshold. Those in the middle turn white in response to the middling levels of striper they detect while those on the far right, bathing in the very lowest amounts of striper, go red. Et voilà, the French flag. Wolpert's flag model was simple to grasp, and developmental biologists loved it. All you had to do to build an organism was to set up a landscape of morphogen gradients, and cells would know exactly what to become, a bit like painting by numbers. More importantly, it was clear to researchers that it worked in real life, thanks to chickens. <laughs> Even today, chicken embryos are an attractive way to study animal development. Scientists can cut a window in the shell of a fertilised hen's egg to watch the chick inside, and even fiddle about with tweezers to manipulate the growing embryo. What's more, chicken wings have three long bony structures buried inside the tip, analogous to our fingers. Each one is different, like the three stripes of a French flag, making them the perfect system for testing out Wolpert's idea. In a series of landmark experiments in the 1960s, John Saunders and Mary Gasling of Wisconsin's Marquette University carefully cut a piece of the lower side of a developing chick's wing bud. Imagine taking a chunk from the edge of your hand by the little finger and stuck it to the upper thumb side. Instead of the usual three digits, thumb, middle and little fingers, the resulting chicken had a mirror wing. Little finger, middle finger, thumb, thumb, middle finger, little finger. The obvious conclusion was that the region from the base of the wing was producing a morphogen gradient. High levels of the gradient told the wing cells to make a little finger. Middling ones instructed the middle digit and low levels made a thumb. It was hard to argue with such a definitive result. But the ghost of Turing's idea still haunted the fringes of biology.
You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? In 1979, a physicist turned biologist and a physical chemist caused a bit of a stir. Stuart Newman and Harry Frisch published a paper in the high-profile journal Science showing how a Turing-type mechanism could explain the patterning in a chicken's fingers. They simplified the developing three-dimensional limb into a flat rectangle and figured out reaction-diffusion equations that would generate waves of an imaginary digit-making morphogen within it as it grew. The patterns generated by Newman and Frisch's model are clunky and square, but they look unmistakably like the bones of a robot chicken hand. They argued that an underlying Turing pattern makes the fingers, which are then given their individual characteristics by some kind of overlying gradient of the sort proposed by the French flag model, as opposed to the gradient itself directing the creation of the digits. People were still in an exploratory mode in the 1970s, and Turing's own paper was only 25 years old at that point. Scientists were hearing about it for the first time, and it was interesting, says Stuart Newman, now at New York Medical College in the USA. I was lucky to get physics-oriented biologists to review my paper. There wasn't an ideology on the limb that had set in, and people were still wondering how it all worked. It was a credible alternative to Wolpert's gradient idea, prominently published in a leading journal. According to Newman, the reception was initially warm. Straight after it was published, one of Wolpert's associates, Dennis Summerbell, wrote me a letter saying that they needed to consider the Turing idea, that it was very important. Then there was silence. A year later, Summerbell's view had changed. He published a joint paper with biologist Jonathan Cook, which made clear that he no longer considered it a valid idea. Newman was shocked. From that point on, nobody in that group ever mentioned it. With one exception, Lewis Wolpert himself once cited our paper in a symposium report in 1989 and dismissed it. Awkward! The majority of the developmental biology community did not consider Turing patterns important at all. Fans of the positional information model closed ranks against Newman. The invitations to speak at scientific meetings dried up. It became difficult for him to publish papers and get funding to pursue Turing models. Paper after paper came out from scientists who supported the French flag model. Newman explains, A lot of them got to be editors at journals. I knew some colleagues who felt that pressure was put on them to keep our ideas out of some of the good journals. In other areas, people were as open to new ideas as you might expect. But because Wolpert and his scientific descendants were so committed to his idea, it became part of the culture of the limb world. All the meetings and special editions of journals were all centred around it, so it was very difficult to displace. Further blows came from the fruit fly Drosophila melanogaster, another organism beloved of developmental biologists. For a while, the regimented stripes that form in the fly's developing embryo were thought to develop through a Turing mechanism. 
but eventually they turned out to be created through the complex interplay of morphogen gradients, activating specific patterns of gene activity in the right place at the right time, rather than a self-striping system. Newman was disappointed by the failure of the research community to take his idea seriously, despite countless hours of further work on both the mathematical and molecular sides. For decades, his and Frisch's paper languished in obscurity, haunting the same scientific territory as Turing's original paper. High up in the Centre for Genomic Regulation in Barcelona is an office papered with brightly coloured pictures of embryonic mouse pores. Each one shows neat stripes of developing bones fanning out inside blob-like budding limbs, something the room's decorator, system biologist James Sharp, is convinced can be explained by Turing's model. Turing's idea is simple, so one can easily imagine how it could explain the patterns we see in nature. And that's part of the problem. Because a simple likeness isn't proof that a system is at work. It's like seeing the face of Jesus in a piece of toast. Telling biological just-so stories about how things have come to be is a dangerous game. Yet this kind of thinking was used to justify the French flag model too. In Sharp's view, it was all the chicken's fault. If studies of limb development had started with a mouse, he says, the whole history would have been very different. In his opinion, there was a built-in bias right from the start that digits were fundamentally different from each other, requiring specific individual instructions for each one, provided by precise morphogen coordinates, according to the French flag model. This was one of the primary arguments made against a role for Turing patterns being involved in limb development. They can only ever generate the same thing, such as a stripe or a spot, again and again. So how could a Turing system create the three distinctive digits of a chick's limb? Surely each one must be told to grow in a certain way by an underlying gradient map. But a chick only has three fingers. If they had 20, you would see that wasn't the case, says Sharp, wiggling his fingers towards me by way of demonstration. They'd all look much more similar to each other. I look down at my own hand and see his point. I have four fingers and a thumb, and each finger doesn't seem to have a particularly unique identity of its own. Sure, there are subtle differences in size, yet they're all basically the same. According to Sharp, the best evidence that they aren't that different comes from one of the most obvious but incorrect assumptions about the body. That people always have five fingers. In reality, the number of fingers and toes is one of the least robust things about the way we're made. We don't always have five, he says, and it's surprisingly common to have more. In fact, it's thought that up to one in 500 children is born with extra digits on their hands or feet. And while the French flag model can't account for this, Turing patterns can. By definition, Turing systems are self-organising, creating consistent patterns with specific properties depending on the parameters. 
In the case of a stripy pattern, this means that the same setup will always create stripes with the same distance, or wavelength as mathematicians call it, between them. If you disrupt the pattern, for example by removing a chunk, the system will attempt to fill in the missing bits in a highly characteristic way. And while Turing systems are good at generating repeating patterns with a consistent wavelength, such as regular-sized fingers, they're less good at counting how many they've made, hence the bonus digits. Importantly, a particular Turing system can only make the same thing over and over again. But look closely at the body, and there are many examples of repeating structures. In many animals, including ourselves, the fingers and toes are more or less all the same. But according to the flag model, structures created in response to different levels of morphogen would all have to be different. How to explain the fact that the same thing can be read out from a higher and lower morphogen level? Sharp maintains that the concept of an underlying molecular roadmap just doesn't hold up. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that for a long time, a lot of the developmental biology community has thought that you have to have these seas of gradients washing over a whole organ. And because they're going in different directions, every part of the organ has a different coordinate. In 2012, the centenary of Turing's birth and 60 years since his chemical morphogenesis paper, Sharp showed that this idea, at least in the limb, was wrong. The proof was neatly demonstrated in a paper by Sharp and Maria Ros at the University of Cantabria in Spain, published in Science. Ros used genetic engineering techniques to systematically remove members of a particular family of genes from mice. Her targets were the Hox genes, which play a fundamental role in organising the body plan of a developing embryo, including patterning mouse pores and human hands. Getting rid of any of these crucial regulators might be expected to have some fairly major effects, but what the researchers saw was positively freaky. As they knocked out more and more of the 39 Hox genes found in mice, the resulting animals had more and more fingers on their paws, going up to 15 in the animals missing the most genes. Importantly, as more Hox genes were cut and more fingers appeared, the spacing between them got smaller. So the increased number of fingers wasn't due to larger pores, but to smaller and smaller stripes fitting into the same space. A classic hallmark of a Turing system, which had never been observed before in mouse limbs. When Sharp crunched the numbers, Turing's equations could account for all the extra fingers Roz and her team were seeing. Well, that's great for the near-identical digits of a mouse, but it doesn't explain why the chick's three digits are so different. Sharp scribbles on a piece of paper, drawing a Venn diagram of two scruffy overlapping circles. One is labelled PI for positional information, a la Walpert. The other, SO, for self-organising systems such as Turing patterns. Tapping at them with his pen, he says... The answer is not that Turing is right and Wolpert is wrong, but that there's a combination at work. Wolpert himself has conceded, to a certain extent, that a Turing system could be capable of patterning fingers. But it can't, by definition, impart the differences between them. 
Morphogen gradients must work on top of this established pattern to give the digits their individual characteristics, from thumb to pinky, marrying together Wolpert's positional information idea with Turing's self-organising one. Other real-life examples of Turing systems that have been quietly accumulating over the past two decades are now being noticed. A 1990 paper from a trio of French chemists described the first unambiguous experimental evidence of a Turing structure. They noticed a band of regular spots appear in a strip of gel where a colour-generating reaction was happening, the telltale sign of a Turing system at work. While studying elegantly striped marine anglerfish, Japanese researcher Shigeru Kondo noticed that rather than their stripes getting bigger as the fish aged, as happens in mammals like zebras, they kept the same spacing, but increased in number, branching to fill the space available. Computer models revealed that a Turing pattern could be the only explanation. Kondo went on to show that the stripes running along the length of a zebrafish can also be explained by Turing's maths. In this case, thanks to two different types of cells interacting with each other, rather than two molecules. It turns out that the pattern coats of cats, from cheetahs and leopards to domestic tabbies, are the result of Turing mechanisms working to fill in the blank biological canvas of the skin. The distribution of hair follicles on our heads and the feathers on birds are also there thanks to Turing-type self-organisation. Other researchers are focusing on how Turing's mathematics can explain the way tubes within an embryo's developing chest split over and over again to create delicate, branched lungs. Even the regular array of teeth in our jaws probably got there by Turing-esque patterning. Meanwhile, in London... Jeremy Green has also found that the rugi on the roof of your mouth owe their existence to a Turing pattern. Those are the repeated ridges just above your front teeth that get burnt if you eat a too hot slice of pizza. As well as fish skins, feathers, fur, teeth, rugi and the bones in our hands, James Sharp thinks there are plenty of other parts of the body that might be created through self-organising Turing patterns with positional information laid on top. For a start, while our digits are clearly stripes, the clustered bones of the wrist could be viewed as spots. These can easily be made with a few tweaks to a Turing equation's parameters. Sharp has some more controversial ideas for where the mechanism might also be at work, perhaps patterning the regular array of ribs and vertebrae running up our spine. He even suspects that the famous stripes in fruit fly embryos have more to do with Turing patterning than the rest of the developmental biology community might suspect. Given that he works in a building clad in horizontal wooden bars, I ask if he's started to see Turing patterns everywhere he looks. I've been through that phase, he laughs. During the centenary year, it really was Turing everywhere. The exciting possibility for me is that we've misunderstood a whole lot of systems and how easy it can be to trick ourselves and the whole community into making up just-so stories that seem to fit and being happy with them. Stuart Newman agrees, his 1979 theory now back out of the shadows. When you start tugging at one thread, a lot of things will fall apart if you're onto something. They don't want to talk about it, not because it's wrong, it's easy to dismiss something that's wrong, but probably because it's right. And I think that's what turned out to be the case. Slowly but surely, 
researchers are piecing together the role of Turing systems in creating biological structures. But until recently, there was still one thing needed to prove that there's a Turing pattern at work in the limb. The identities of the two components that drive it. That mystery has now been solved by James Sharp and his team in a paper published in August 2014, again in the journal Science. Five years in the making, it combines delicate embryo work with hardcore number crunching. Sharp figured that the components needed to fuel a Turing pattern in the limb must show a stripy pattern that reflects the very early developing fingers either switched on in the future fingers and off in the cells destined to become the gaps, or vice versa. To find them, graduate student Yelena Raspopovich collected cells from a developing mouse limb bud, in which only the merest hint of gene activity that leads to digit formation could be seen. After separating the two types of cells and much painstaking molecular analysis, some interesting suspects popped out. Using computer modelling, Sharp was able to exactly recapitulate a gradual appearance of digits that mirrored what they saw in actual mouse pores, based on the activity patterns of these components. Intriguingly, unlike the neat two-part system invoked by Turing, Sharp thinks that three different molecules work together in the limb to make fingers. One is SOX9, a protein that tells cells to make bones here in the developing digits. The others are signals sent by two biological messenger systems, one called BMP, or bone morphogenetic protein signalling, which switches on SOX9 in the fingers, and another messenger molecule known as WINT, which turns it off in the gaps between fingers. So while classic Turing systems invoke just two components, an activator and an inhibitor, this situation is a little more complicated. It doesn't seem to boil down to literally just two things, Sharp explains. Real biological networks are complex, and in our case we've boiled it down to two signalling pathways, rather than two specific molecules. Further confirmation came when they went the other way, from the model to the embryo. Another of Sharp's students, Luciano Marcon, tweaked the programme to see what would happen to the patterns if each signalling pathway was turned down. In the simulation, reducing BMP signalling led to a computer-generated pore with no fingers. Conversely, turning down WINT predicted a limb made entirely of digits fused together. When tested in real life, using tiny clumps of limb bud tissue taken from early mouse embryos and grown in petri dishes, these predictions came true. Treating the cultures with drugs that dampened down each pathway produced exactly what the programme had predicted. No fingers or all fingers. An alternative simulation with both signals turned down at the same time predicts two or three fat fingers instead of five neat digits. Again, using both drugs at once on real mouse limb buds created exactly the same pattern. Being able to flip from the model to the embryo and back again, making testable predictions that are borne out by experiments, is a key piece of proof that things are working in the way that Sharp thinks. And if the theory is finally accepted, and we can figure out how and where Turing systems are used to create structures in nature, what can we do with this knowledge? Well, quite a lot, according to Jeremy Green. You can live without Rugi, 
But the things like your heart valves or your whole palate, they really matter, he says. The regenerative medics working on any stem cell technology or cell therapy in the future are going to need to understand how these are made. The growth factor research in the 1980s was the bedrock of the stem cell therapies that are starting to go into clinical trials now. But it inspired the whole world of regenerative medicine. That's the kind of timescale we're talking about. At Guy's Hospital, he sees up close what happens when development goes awry. His department specialises in birth defects affecting the face and skull. And Green believes that understanding the underlying molecular nuts and bolts is the key to fixing them. What we're doing now is very theoretical, and we can fantasise about how it's going to be useful, but in 25 years, that's the kind of knowledge we'll need to have, he says. It'll probably be taken for granted by then, but we'll need to know all this cheering stuff to be able to build a better body. In the last years of Alan Turing's life, he saw his mathematical dream, a programmable electronic computer, sputter into existence from a temperamental collection of wires and tubes. Back then, it was capable of crunching a few numbers at a snail's pace. Today, the smartphone in your pocket is packed with computing technology that would have blown his mind. It's taken almost another lifetime to bring his biological vision into scientific reality, but it's turning out to be more than a neat explanation, a just-so story, and some fancy equations. But as Alan Turing reportedly once said, well, the stripes are easy, but what about the horse part? What indeed, but that, as they say, is a story for another day. That's all for now. Many thanks to my editor at Mosaic, Monkey Louie, for all his help bringing the story of how the zebra got its stripes to life. You can get the link to the full story, plus a couple of bonus extra pieces about how Turing patterns may be involved in fruit fly development after all, and the growing role of mathematical modelling in biology, by following the links on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. We'll be back next time chatting to Adam Rutherford about his new book, Control, exploring the dark history and disturbing present-day legacy of eugenics, and how we should address the role that some of the 20th century's leading geneticists played in this oppressive ideology. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by the fabulous Hannah Varrell. Happy New Year, thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.